In episode 12 of MobyCast, John discusses his key takeaways from Glucon 2018. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about containerization, Docker, and modern software deployment. Let's jump right in. Welcome, Rich and Chris. It's number 12, MobyCast number 12. I'm excited to be here today. We like to get started every week with just a little recap on what we've been up to this week. So what have you been up to, Rich? So we uh, we were launching a site this week and sort of as a result, I didn't have a whole lot that I could jump into. So I started to sort of look through our static framework to see if I could build anything new. And I went down this rabbit hole of uh, trying to build my own set of generators or scaffolding generators or whatever. I've always liked how Rails sort of just built stuff for you. And so what I'm trying to accomplish is just write some sort of CL command and and have some things created and put into the right folders. Uh, so I'm about halfway through that and everything's broken. So hopefully next week I'll have a little bit of an update on it. Nice. So you spent your week buried in tech. Yeah. Um, how about you, Chris? Yeah, I kind of the same deal after being um, on a plane for the past uh, five weeks or so. Um, this was kind of like the first week back in the back in the office, tied to the keyboard, um, and uh, kind of rolling up the sleeves and getting back into it. So um, did quite a bit of kind of AWS maintenance and and updating to our um, to our clusters, and also building out a, a new environment for just purely for doing demos. Um, a, a stable, um, basically production copy environment that we can we can do demos on. And then also doing quite a bit of uh, just planning and strategy um, for for the projects that I've been been leading. I know you're sandbagging because all of our AWS buildouts and and deploys are totally automated. So if you spent the whole week doing that, I must have meant you you got a new game that you were playing or something. <laughs> no, I, I it, it was. Uh, that was one day of work to um, not, not not quite one day of work, but that was actually I I tore down all of our machines um, in one day and rebuilt them all um, and redid the way that we're doing um, our logging uh, log collection uh, to deal with some wow. issues. So and updated it all to the to the latest greatest AMIs. So yeah, that's that's actually good. That was obviously a poor attempt at a joke, but you know the dream would be if everything was automated. And and but the reality is that this stuff does take some time. But I'm impressed how much you got done in in a short time. It sounds like. And then as for me, I I went to a conference this week, one called GlueCon. It's in Denver. It's been held for ten years now. Um, and it is about the glue, about APIs, about now containers, about um, you know building distributed systems. Um, they also started introducing the B word this year, uh, but we won't talk about blockchain. Um, so that was what GlueCon was about. And I thought that you know this is the segue. This is what we'll talk about today. So today we'll we'll talk about the state of the containerization world based on essentially the pulse that I took over the last two days at GlueCon. And the types of attendees at GlueCon are, you know, it is a lot of Colorado companies. It's a lot of um, telecom companies, a lot of some healthcare companies, and then big companies like IBM are there, Microsoft is there, um, Oracle is there, and then, um, you know, random other folks from software companies. It's a lot of developers and development managers. Um, Like, it's not really an executive-focused conference. Uh, the 
instructions that they give to speakers, and I was I was also lucky enough to be a speaker, is that your your talk should have code in it. So every talk did have some code in it, whether whether it should have or not. Um, so anyway, I wrote down about five takeaways that I thought we could try to discuss in just a short 20-minute um, podcast today. So the first one is Kubernetes, Kubernetes, Kubernetes. In the entire conference, there were uh, something like 60% of the talks were specifically about Kubernetes-related things. And then the other 40% at least mentioned Kubernetes. And this is not a surprise. Kubernetes is um, is the main orchestrator, and it's what all big enterprise companies are focused on. Um, but I was a little surprised that I didn't hear a bit more talk of ECS and very surprised that I did not hear the word swarm once. What are your thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, um, given that uh, the conference that you were at, Glucon, I'm not surprised at all that uh, people weren't talking about ECS. Um, now, if you're at reInvent, <laughs> a totally different story. Um, but uh, And then as far as swarm goes, um, you know, pretty pretty much I think the writing's on the wall there for for Docker that that's not going to survive. And they've kind of acknowledged that with kind of now having native support for Kubernetes being built into the engine. So I would, I would definitely see Swarm kind of um, going off into the sunset um, and Kubernetes and ECS are going to battle it out. Right on. And um, I talked to Joe Beta from Heptio and I talked about ECS and Kubernetes a little bit and, and specifically also talked about EKS, which is coming, which is in beta now and, and hopefully will be GAS, GA soon. And Joe said that, uh, you know, he does think that there's just going to be a, an onslaught of new Kubernetes usage as soon as EKS is available. Um, and I, I, I sort of expect that Kelsus will be looking pretty hard at EKS. Uh, I don't know. What, what do you EKS? think? Are we going to look hard at that? EKS is uh, Elastic Kubernetes Service, um, and that will be AWS's managed Kubernetes service so that it, it helps you configure and run Kubernetes. Gotcha. And Chris, do you think that we're going to be taking a hard look at EKS? Uh, I don't know if hard look, but definitely um, uh, a tangential one. Um, don't really see... Um, I see that as being really... Um, useful and interesting for people that um, have been using Kubernetes and also want um, kind of still want that um, flexibility to say, like we have some stuff running on prem, we have stuff, some stuff running in the cloud. We may, may even have multiple cloud providers, so they don't want to be locked in to um, the uh, AWS orchestrator ECS. Um, but if you're in AWS, um, like nothing is going to be tighter um, for running dockers and containers than, than, Amazon's version of its orchestrator. So um, like, I don't see a compelling reason for us to say, oh, we're going to switch from ECS to EKS. Um, I think it's more of a migration path to, there, like you said, there's so many people running Kubernetes right now inside Amazon um, and they're all, they're managing those those cluster hosts themselves. Um, and it's not integrated mm-hmm. in with, with load balancers and all the other goodness that you get with ECS. So um, that's where EKS comes in. It's for those folks that are using that. Um, they can now use it and take advantage of, of some of that, that great AWS integration goodness. Right on. Um, and I agree with you. So, so it kind of leads into a, another 
another sort of thing. You you had mentioned that you're not surprised, given the audience at GlueCon, that it was all about Kubernetes. And and it's true. When you have cable companies and telecom companies and, and other sort of big enterprise sort of do it the old way kind of companies, uh, and not you know not cozied up to AWS types of companies, um, it's unsurprising to see Kubernetes. What was interesting though, and this is the second sort of the second takeaway, is that. There were all of these talks, and the, and a lot of the talks were not that technically complex. If you've been able to follow along with MobyCast, you would have been fine in a lot of these talks. But the rest of the audience w- was not ready for these talks. So there are a lot of attendees, I would say, more than half of the attendees were were just, you know, they need to go through the process of dockerizing their their stuff and getting out of their legacy, um, you know, treating servers as pets world. Um, and so to, to sit there and listen to somebody talk about uh, something called Itzio, Istio, which is a, um, a service mesh tool set, they're like service mesh. Oh, my God. I just have this legacy monolith that's a collection of monoliths and and I don't even really understand what the value of a service mesh would be, let alone some of these detailed pieces of functionality that you're talking about that come with the service mesh. It's just, you know, blown right by me. So I just say that because I think that the, the, a lot of the audience could benefit from ECS and does just need to get some services behind a load balancer running a Docker that can scale up and down. And that's what ECS is great at. But they're sitting here going to conferences that are all about Kubernetes, Kubernetes, service meshes, service meshes. And it's like, I think that there's something to that. Um, I think that this conference and the sort of people that are at it are leading a, leading a charge. And whether or not the people that um, kind of need to be the, the next followers should be using ECS or Kubernetes, they're kind of, they're probably going to find themselves using Kubernetes just because that's the, that's the loudest sound in the room. You hear what I'm saying, Chris? Like we're just all following each other. And if everybody's shouting about Kubernetes, it's hard to hear the, the, the ECS, the, the pure ring maybe off in the corner of ECS. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked about this in a previous episode, how, the the pace of innovation is is relentless um the just technology is changing constantly um service messages no one was talking about that two years ago three years ago and now you have a whole bunch of products in that space for dealing with the control plane um in inside your um across all your um your nodes and whatnot you have things like service discoverability um like there's a lot of there's there's a lot of pieces to this and so um you go to especially these conferences that are geared more towards the open source world. Um, it's not packaged up. It's, there are a lot of knobs to be turned. Um, and it is, it can be very overwhelming and confusing. And, um, I think a lot of people do go to that and they're just like deer in the headlights, um, and don't know what to do with it other than like, wow, it sounds really cool, but, um, not sure how practical it is for them. So, you know, it's this is an ongoing problem of like how do you how do you keep up and transition and and how do you get it in in bite sized chunks that make sense for you to to start using and, and adopting um, and people just have to make it a priority because um, it's it's really easy just to be like it's too just to say it's too hard throw your arms up and just kind of go back to business as usual right and that's a good you know there was a talk from Brendan Burns who is one of the 
the people who originally created Kubernetes and the talk was titled, this is too hard. Um, and so you just, and you just said those exact words, Chris, this is too hard. You, and, but one of the points that he made at the beginning of the talk was you can't throw your hands up in the air. You can't walk away from this because the expectation of everybody now is that you're going to be creating distributed systems um, that work, that are available. That, that's just, even if you're making a little mobile app, you're going to make some distributed systems behind that app that provide APIs that are always up and always available. And there's not going to be a downtime from midnight to 2 a.m. Um, they're just available and you do rolling updates and you do things the modern way. That's everybody's expectations now. Users, CEOs, everybody. Um, so that's really a problem that it's too hard. It's, it's a, a desperate problem. And I think that, that, you know, everybody's working really hard, including Calsys at, at solving this. Um, you know, we're trying to help with training. We're trying to help with talking about it on this podcast. And then tool builders are building tools to try to deal with this on the other side. What can, you know, Brendan said that he feels like they've done a good job of making it easier to run distributed systems with Kubernetes. Um, and that the next step is to make it easier to build distributed systems. And I, I totally agree. Uh, I think a point that he made is that the minimum number of files and configurations that you need to build a dis distributed system is something like nine. Um, and there's, you know, that's too many. If you, if you need to have nine different files with configurations in them just to, just to stand up a Hello World service in Kubernetes, that's too much. That's too hard. Hey, this is Rich. You might recognize me as the guy who introduces the show, but is pretty much silent during the meat of the podcast. The truth is, these topics are oftentimes incredibly complex, and I'm just too inexperienced to provide much value. What you might not know is that John and Chris created the training product to help developers of all skill sets get caught up to speed on AWS and Docker. If you're like me and feel underwater in these conversations, head on over to ProDockerTraining.com and get on the mailing list for the inaugural course. Okay. Let's dive back in. It'll be interesting to see where people tackle this. Problem. I kind of want to challenge that real quick, if we can, that this sure be hard, because I mean, part of me thinks that like, it's too hard for people who don't have the education and the experience and the result of the open source community has, you know, like people like myself have emerged, right? People who shouldn't be in this like 20 years ago would never have the opportunity or now. And it's, so, yeah, it's too hard for me it's probably a lot too hard for a lot of people in that conference. But like you said, uh, you sat through it and everything made sense. Chris would sit through right, it. Right. It makes sense. And so of what course. I want to say, is it too hard or do we have too high of expectations as an end consumer of what we think is possible on a budget? And on the other end, is it, are people just saying that they're more experienced than they really are? Right. Are they, are they getting involved without the experience, the education that they really need? And isn't that, more of the problem, right? I never can call myself an engineer because I don't have a degree, but I can call myself anything else. And really, <laughs> like no one, no one's going to ever really argue with that. I can call myself a senior developer. I can call. I mean, I guess the only thing I can't call myself is an engineer because you need a degree for it. But I mean, it seems to me that it's it's only too hard because there, are, like, access to it is easier, right? Like, if you're yep. using all of those servers just to throw up a hello world, well, you're you're not you don't get the point. Because you don't need to do that. No, no, no. So, so let me just address that a little bit. Um, I think that things are cyclical, and that we're at a point in time right now where where doing something that should be fairly straightforward is too hard. 
So if if the idea is that you want to put up a service that can essentially like look up, you know, what parts are available by by part ID number, and in order to do that, you have to put, you know, you have to do all this configuration and and think about availability zones on AWS and think about um, think about you know failover, think about all kinds of things, all all kinds of things that don't actually just get you that part ID or that part by the ID. Then it is too hard. Um, and, and it's kind of, if you look back and what, why is this cyclical? It's because, you know, early on in order to do the same thing, you know, in the eighties, it was also too hard. You maybe had to do assembly language to create a, you know, to create a lock so that your code could run without getting stepped on by other code. And, and like, that was also very hard. And then later, later, uh, higher order programming languages came along that made, made that type of stuff a lot easier. So as each thing becomes easier, then expectations go up and then things get hard again. Hmm. Um, so in the, in the mid two thousands, things got a little bit easy for a while. Um, there were, it was possible to create web applications without really knowing too much and just get them out there and running. Um, and expectations were fairly low about their stability and scalability, but then those expectations went way up with the introduction and introduction of mobile and just, you know, relentless progress by companies like Netflix and Google and Twitter. So, yeah, as we move to the cloud, expectations have gone up and things have become difficult. And so it's it's our job as developers to make them easy again. And then the next difficult thing will come along. I haven't given you a chance to to speak to that, Chris. Do you, do you disagree? No, I, I mean, I think it's just the evolution of the ecosystem. So it wasn't expected back in the late 90s, early 2000s, because just the the tools, the infrastructure, um, the ability to to kind of be available to to everyone wasn't there, um, but it is now, right? So there's it's now part of the expectation. Like you don't have to like having the fail well is just is just not acceptable. Having scheduled downtime not not so um, acceptable anymore because all the right. infrastructure and the capabilities of the tools are there to do it, right? Anyone can do it now. It's in the hands of the many. It's no longer just in the hands of the big ones like AOL or Microsoft or, or Netscape. So, you know, it's just, uh, everything is, is advancing, evolving. Um, technology is like, and again, it's not slowing down. Like we are, we are, <laughs> we are staring in the face of like how AI and ML and blockchain and, um, Moore's law and who knows quantum computing, um, self-driving cars, um, drones, like (laughs) it's not slowing down people. That's interesting. (laughs) It actually makes me think that maybe there's this inflection point that we've hit where like as humans, we just can't keep up with it. Right. It's like all those things that you just said are just mind boggling individually. And then in aggregate, they're just not even something you can comprehend. So it's too hard, but I think it's because our expectations for what we can do are sort of outpacing our availability or our potential to do them. Yeah. And yeah, this is probably, a, yeah, this is like a, probably a, we could totally sidetrack on this and have a whole, whole, whole session on it, but like, this is where like augmentation comes in, right? So whether you call it personal assistance or it's robots or AI, it's like, Again, it's like the expectation will be like people will be able to do this because you have you have these other things that help you deal with that, right? So it's no longer going to be just your own brain that has to deal with all this stuff to keep up with it. You're going to have help. Um, you're going to have, you know, a 
you're going to have robots. You're going to have like really deep AI capabilities and you're going to be able to like Alexis is, is still in its, in its uh, early stages, but what is it going to be five years from now? It's like, you can't even imagine what it's going to be. Right. So we're coming up on the 20 minute mark here and we've only hit on two of the five things that were takeaways from um, Glucon. I just want to read off here what the other three are because maybe we can fit in one more quick one for our listeners. So there's a lot of worry about cloud lock-in. There's a lot of people that are wanting to jump really straight into serverless. um, And there's a particular reason for that that I wanted to talk about. And then the final thing is that I saw that there were fewer vendors this year and I just, that could be anything from, you know, things happening within the Glucon um, planning world to to actual, you know, reasons that some of the vendors I saw last year might not be there anymore, like maybe they, they didn't survive. Um, so those are three more things I wanted to talk about. Maybe we could just quickly touch, because we've touched on this in a previous episode, I think we could quickly touch on people wanting to jump heavy and hard into serverless. Um, so we've talked about how serverless has a right fit, you know, right tool for the job type of fit. And But what we're seeing is that people want to use it for everything. And I had a conversation with one of the founders of a company called Stackify that provides essentially, you know, GitHub to deploy dashboarding and monitoring and um, sort of help for serverless applications. And when I talked to him about who was using serverless and what, what his target market was, he talked about how Lambda has Lambda's biggest user base is not enterprises, not companies with sophisticated needs around event management and event-driven systems, but people that are just wanting to get something done quickly and, and startups and um, people that don't want to think about infrastructure. And I thought that was interesting. So whether or not it's a good idea for people to be using Lambda for their their whole application, that's what people are using it for. And it's seeing exponential growth in that area. And I find it fascinating. Um, And I think it's something to be aware of when we think about the software market. Would you have guessed the same, Chris? Yeah, not surprising. Um, In a way, you can kind of think of it as like kind of what the basic programming language did for folks, right? It's kind of something that makes yeah. it really accessible. You can put together like these really quick things that do do like Prince Hello World or, it, you know, it does something like it resizes an image or whatever it is that you're doing in Lambda or you're, maybe you're doing a, a very easy Alexa skill or something. So doesn't surprise me at all, but like actually building like, um, like true engineering software, um, like that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother story. So that that may be really good news for, for Stackify, but I think it's like, what happens after that? Like how long do they stay with that? Right. Like if it, if it does grow from like being more than a, than a prototype or a toy into something that um, really needs to, to uh, be mature um, and that they depend on, then like, is that the right, is the right thing? Right. And what are those, what are those boundaries? Like, for a microservice, say you you put a microservice on Lambda, um, you know what kind of limitations does it have around monitoring? What kind of limitations does it have around scaling up quickly? And how big can it scale? And how much does that cost versus doing some of the 
the hard work around creating a, um, a distributed service. So lots to talk about there, but, uh, but my questions as well, because if the reality is that all these companies are building up big systems on Lambda and the reality is also that some of those companies are going to succeed, I, I guess I wonder how screwed are they going to be um, when they achieve that success? And, and is it going to kill them? Are they going to move to other systems or are they going to be able to figure out a way forward with Lambda? It'll be interesting. Indeed. Yeah. And for, for me, like a fundamental question for those folks is like, why are you so excited about serverless? Because um, motivations, I think, will kind of dictate whether they are successful in the future. If the motivations sure. are kind of in line with with what it gives you, then then it makes sense. But otherwise, it's uh, like if your motivation is like, well, it's too hard to figure out how to run servers or infrastructure. It's probably not the right probably not the right reason. Right. There's there's, there's, right. there's other things that you have to you're you're going to have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't doesn't prevent you from having to operate a running system. Mm-hmm. At some point, we should we should do an episode just on serverless, so I can wrap my head around this a little bit more. Because I'd like to know inherently what's yeah. what's wrong with what they're doing. Like, why why is it sort of a uh, you know a definite problem when they when they grow to certain sizes? I yeah, yeah, maybe we could do that next week. I think that 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 would be a good topic to just dive a little further into because because I think it's on everybody's mind, and I think there are definitely people out there that wonder if I'm not using serverless, am I making a bad architectural decision? Isn't that the modern way. So let's talk about that some more for sure. Maybe next week. Well, I want to make sure that we, we don't lose listeners by talking for an hour. So, so let's wrap it up. Uh, Thank you so much again this week for your time, Rich and Chris. Thanks, Sean. Thanks guys. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode, along with show notes and other valuable resources, is available at mobicast.fm forward slash one two. If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week.